Well, last Lord's Day, if you were here with us, you know that we looked at Psalm 130, and that was a very important psalm. Thank you again, Jeff, for even that song that you just sang, reflective of that psalm. Speaking about the phrase, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And I wanted to do something a little bit different this morning. I wanted to take that phrase that you have, second book of the Torah, the book of Moses, Exodus chapter 20, as we're going to look at this idea of fearing God, this fear that comes from being forgiven. Exodus chapter 20. And what you're going to see here before us is that we have one of the most awe-inspiring portions of the Old Testament in many, many regards. And yet, before I read this narrative to you, I want to take a moment just to kind of caution you a little bit about the fact that there's ways to read this that might not be so accurate to what is being displayed here. Often in narrative portions of Scripture, you might know that there are men who read them as if they are adventure novels, as if something is happening that is so unbelievably incredible and exciting, which it is. But many of the stories that are contained in the narrative and yet still at the same time lose the effect of it. You so are familiar with what happens in a reading of narrative that sometimes the challenge is that many of these classic stories that we read become nothing more than just good fiction to us. It's so obvious that sometimes the incredible abundance and the miraculous nature of all of these events to the modern reader can seem at times like unreality. It's almost as if we read the newspapers and we don't often find headlines saying that a thousand men were killed with a donkey's jawbone. It just doesn't happen. Uh, we, we don't read of floating axe heads or family living for months on only a handful of flour or a little jug of oil. So we diminish the, the intensity of it. And though these exploits might seem entertaining, they just seem so far that unconsciously we begin to view them as just kind of not relevant to our lives. Just another passage of scripture, another piece of quasi-fiction, having no practical value. But when the Bible says that it's the word of God, when the scriptures define itself as these amazing stories being authentic, historical, real events happening to real people, just like you and me, it changes everything. With that said, I want to look at what we have here this morning in Exodus chapter 20 because of all the astonishing miracles that you might see in the Old Testament, of all of the grand displays of the person and the presence of God that you see all through the scripture, the most awe-inspiring event that ever took place occurred in what we have recorded before us here in the text that I started last Lord's Day. Exodus 20, verse 18. And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And the people perceived it. And they shook and stood at a distance. And then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. For God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may be with you so you may not sin. 
So the people stood at a distance. But Moses came near the dense gloom where God was. And then Yahweh said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have besides me gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. You shall make an altar of earth for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. And if you make an altar of stone for me, and you shall not build it of cut stones for you, if you wield your stone on it, if you wield, excuse me, your tool on it, you will profane it, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar, so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. Richard Burroughs, in his masterpiece called Gospel Worship, wrote the following. The reason men worship God in a slight way is because they do not see God in his glory. The reason men worship God in a slight way is because they don't see If we were to have the vision of the holiness of God that Israel was exposed to here in these words, if the test of fear of God, the test of fearing God was applied to our lives in the same way that was dramatic and visceral in the lives of the Israelites, we would be changed forevermore. We would be changed forevermore until we have the image of God as the high and lofty one as we see here in the text. We will be guilty of reproach given by God to the wicked in Psalm 50. You thought I was just like you. Now look at verse 20 with me, which is really acts as the hinge upon which our whole message is going to swing this morning. Moses, verse 20 said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may be with you so that you may not sin and a type of fear that should not be avoided. In other words, what he's saying is don't fear this way, fear that way. The first fear relates to just this perceived reason why God had manifested himself in this terrible manner. And the, the second fear is the real reason that God has come in this text, which is for the reason that they don't yet understand. In other words, what he's saying is God has not come to you to kill your body, but rather he has come to infuse into your heart a lasting sense of his greatness, a sense of his profundity, a sense of his vastness, And he will do that by putting you through a test, a test of fear, a test to prove if you fear God. And what is so profound is that this verse that we're also looking at is not only important for us to consider propositional statement. This is the proposition that Moses wants us not to miss, that God wants us to be having instilled into our heart a sense of fearing him that would remain in us and remain with us so profoundly that we might not sin against him. So in Psalm 130, we are fearing God of his forgiveness Because he has forgiven us and now we see that we fear God because in that fear now we won't sin against the one who has pardoned us. So how are we to do that? How are we to to understand this to the level that might change our lives, might make us and recalibrate us into the kind of men and women that would fear God? 
What we have to learn is to pass a test and to pass the test of fearing God so that we might not sin against the God of our salvation. And what must we do to ensure that the fear of God remains with us even after we leave this building this morning is to pass the test of fearing God. Three ways to make sure that the fear of God, the fear of the Lord remains in you with its full comprehension of the nature and person of God so that you're humble and walk before him. This really is the bottom line for so many of us. Pride is so incredible. The, the, the temporary little clips of our lives going before us thinking that we're something when we're nothing. You're going to see even today and partly off of what we even heard this morning that really understanding God makes you diminish in your own nature and exalt him in his to want to allow the wonder of God to so amaze us and so inspire us and so, in a way, terrorize us because of His greatness that our sinfulness would stop against Him and we would be living in contentment before Him. So if you're taking notes, number one, the first way to pass this test of fearing God so that you may learn not to... In verse 18. And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And the people perceived it and they shook and stood at a distance. Probably more than any other book in the whole Old Testament, the book of Exodus is a book of wonders, amazing wonders. In Genesis, we have his creative inspiration and power being manifest, made all through what he has made. But in Exodus, we have the amazing reality of God's presence with his people. Now, as we look at this point, it must be remembered that Israel, in the book of Exodus, is the most exposed people in the history of the universe. And I say that because no people have been able to experience the phenomena of the glory of God like they did. Now, as we sense an unwilling audience, they have been subjected to this not because of any invitation that they've accepted, but because they were literally those in Egypt. They were the unwilling audiences to the plagues cast in Egypt. They were the unwilling audience to the blood in the Nile. They heard the frogs. They infested their homes. They knew of the gnats and they gagged at the throats of Pharaoh's family. They smelled the rotting corpses of the cattle that were killed. They witnessed the boils that emerged in the skin of their enemies. They saw all of this. The hail that came, the, 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 the locusts covered to their ears with streams, screams of their parents as they witnessed the death of their firstborn. All of this is a part of what Israel has to witness the towering pillar and cloud and fire that led them to the precipice of the Red Sea. They were overwhelmed with this experience of the most massive nature of God that had ever been expressed in the history of mankind. The actual dividing of the Red Sea before them was by the invisible hand of God was something they saw with their own eyes. And all of that was a wonder, but nothing, and listen to this, nothing would prepare them or could prepare them for what happened at the crest of Mount Sinai, the single most devastating demonstration of the glory and the greatness of God ever manifested. Chapter 12 of Hebrews verse 21 tells us that the sight was so terrible that Moses, the only man who had spoken to God face to face, said, I am full of fear and trembling, Hebrews 12, 21. 
So what was so horrific about this scene? What was, what was making them tremble physiologically? Well, I want you to get a sense of what is being in heaven and earth. When he decided to put himself on display here in this chapter, when he decided to give Israel just an experience of himself, the greatest manifestation of power that would befit a wonder, he, he does so by transforming a mountain called Sinai into a massive holy of holies charged with electrical power like a nuclear reactor. Now, first, I want you to see where this all happened as you're catching up to speed with what I'm saying. First, it happened on a mountain. Again, a mountain. Benno Rothenberg in his book, God's Wilderness, it's a large pictorial volume that features several pages of Sinai as you view it today. It's a wonderful book if you can find it. And in this book, he sees Sinai, what they consider the mount, and he says, The awe-inspiring granite peaks at the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. Imagine that, the, the Israelites coming upon and gathering as a people, maybe as many as two million people, to hear God's voice in the shadow of this great peak that reached no less 8,000 feet heavenward like a gigantic fist in the air. Second, notice what happened there. God was overloading every sense in these Israelites, every sense that he had placed in a man and a woman. His sense of sight, his sense of sound, his sense of touch, his sense of smell. He did this in this very, very early time of Israel's history to attack their senses, to allow them to open up every possible avenue of physical expression to be consumed by him. For instance, the sense of sight was shocked by the blinding flashes of light that I described to you, dancing the peak, the massive rock edifice where it illuminated the clouds. His his sense of sound, all the Israelites would hear this burst and the crashing clasp of thunder roaring all through the echoing mountains like a blast of supernatural trumpets screaming holy notes. The sense of touch was also awakened from both the quaking and the reverberation of the sounds echoing through the air and the shaking of their own bodies as they were trembling uncontrollably at what they were seeing. And even the sense of smell as the smoke filled the air and the thickening alarm of death and impending doom choking even their ability to breathe. I want you to sense that. I want you to sense what they were sensing even as they beheld this. This is overpowering. It is, it is trembling. It is inspiring. Some of us in Southern California, maybe some of you visitors don't know this, but we know earthquakes here. We haven't had a great one in a while, 1994, 6.7. What it's like after an earthquake, you're shaken. You're, you're, you're feeling the ripple now, now and then, even when the ripple isn't coming, and you get this kind of funny feeling that it's going to happen again before anything else occurs. But, but how does that compare when you see a granite mountain shaking? When you see and or hear constant thunder clapping and lightning strikes between clouds and earth to shrink before long blasts of heavenly trumpets? It's an experience beyond description, really. It's an experience that surpasses the senses. It's, it's, a, it's an awe-inspiring, terrifying, sensational experience that tells you you might not make it. You might not be able to endure it. The reaction to that is called trembling. 
and you tremble. It only represents the saints as stricken and overcome whenever they felt the presence of God. He goes on to say, as a consequence, we must infer that man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. You see, God had revealed himself in the overwhelming majesty at Sinai, not just to demonstrate his own holiness, but to inspire, listen to this, their holiness. There was a musical, believe it or not, many years ago, 2006, Lori and I went. It opened in Los Angeles. The musical was titled The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. It was supposed to be a musical theater experience keeping in line with the Bibscar before we went. So is this a... Is this like a mockery, like Jesus Christ Superstar? Or is this, you know, a serious treatment of the account, just to see what she would say? And she said, well, um, there's amazing lights uh, and sounds and and, uh, technical details. And she said, it's pretty amazing. And I thought, as she was trying to impress upon me, um, the most current technology, the state of the art back in 2006, I thought, But nothing can compare to this. Nothing can compare to what I just read to you. It's it's such a vivid example, isn't it, of just a cheap substitute of what sometimes we even do, we allow in our own souls. You've exchanged trembling at the foot of the mountain for IMAX 2D and think somehow that's comparable. So how do you learn to tremble at the wonder of God's consecrate yourself. Look at Exodus 19:10. Exodus 19:10. Yahweh also said to Moses, "Go to the people and set them apart as holy today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments." Set them apart to consecrate to they needed clean garments because again they were going to have clean garments to reflect clean hearts. No soil was to dirty their soul before any man or woman could ever tremble in the presence of the holiness of God that they were about to experience. They must prepare themselves with a life that is ready to tremble. Second, consider yourself, he says. Not only consecrate yourself, but consider yourself. Look at Exodus 19, verse 12. And you shall set bonds for the people all around... Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountains were told to beware of what they did. They knew God was God and they knew that they were not God, which is so important. And therefore, there were boundaries. Jerry Bridges in his book, The Joy of Fearing God, The Joy of Fearing God, says, the fear of God certainly denotes the only fitting response to his awesome greatness and transcendent majesty. It is also recognition of our own frailty, our weakness. It is also recognition of our own, uh, uh, of the sinfulness in us and the presence of his sovereign power and infinite holiness. At the same time, the fear of God also denotes the love and humble gratitude of the person who consciously of his own sinfulness and exposure to divine wrath has experienced the grace and mercy in the forgiveness of his sins, end quote. 
If you go to Isaiah, you don't have to turn there, but we see Isaiah chapter 6. We hear this in verse 3 when Isaiah has a vision of Yahweh and one called out to another, speaking of the seraphim, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In other words, it could be said that the first step towards fearing God is fearing yourself. I want you to think about that statement. The first step toward fearing God is fearing yourself. Do you notice that when you are trembling at the wonders of God's presence that you're not concerned with the distractions of your life? Do you realize and notice that when you are trembling at your, your only concern is God and how you can be in his presence and how you will be in his presence and how you don't want to perish without him? This is the cure for self-fascination. This is the cure. Fear God. Be consumed with God. Be so aware that you are but a breath away from coming face to face with your creator. The distractions go away. So if you want to pass the test, if you want to learn to fear God, you must first learn to tremble at his wonders. You must place yourself where you can receive what God is manifesting. Be prepared to meet him physically. This is not a call to emotionalism. This isn't experimentalism. This is a call for tender-heartedness towards God. Second, there is another way to pass the test of fearing God, to keep yourself in this position of amazement so that you might be holy before Him. Number one, not only tremble at His wonders, but number two, learn to tremble at His word. Not only learn to tremble at his one, number two, tremble at his word. And you see that back in Exodus chapter 20, as again, we have this incredible manifestation of what it is to tremble, seen in verses 19 through 21. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may be with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance, but Moses came near the dense gloom where God was. This is vital, very imperative, so important to understand the entire passage. It begins to highlight this real reason for the meeting of Israel with God in the first place. The reason was because God wanted them to hear his voice, to hear his words. What's not apparent in the reading of verse 18, as I read it earlier, is that this terrified reaction to the people is not relegated only just to the phenomena surrounding them in the presence of God and the lightning and the thunder and the quake and the smoke, supernatural light show, even though that was heavily influencing them, of course. But God was speaking to them the whole time. Look at verse 19. Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us lest we die. In other words, what's he saying? The context is that God is speaking. God is speaking. He is speaking the entire time. Exodus 19.9 gives us the context for that. Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you and speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. 
Then Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh. Interesting, interesting. This is what's happening here in Exodus 19. The Lord wanted the people, think of this, to hear and see him with the specific intention of making sure that they understood that Moses' words were valid. He wanted them to hear him speak and pointed to Moses, listen to him. At first, the people never really heard themselves for themselves the voice of God. They'd never really heard him pronounce all the commandments. So the temptation, if you follow, was for them to think that this, this sin, these 10 commandments that came off the mountain were Moses. Moses had created that. Moses was the one who had etched out the words. So it was control tactics. God had created, no, this entire supernatural spectacle for the sole reason, and this is very encouraging to shepherds, of protecting the reputation of the messenger of the word. To protect the reputation of the messenger of his words. The entire context of this whole experience takes place after God has delivered the Ten Commandments for the second time. But unlike the first time when he gave them only to Moses, now he gets an audience for himself to show that these are his commandments and Moses is his messenger. Do you understand the implications of this? God will move heaven And earth, he will electrify the senses of his people. He will even tremble the hearts of those who are in his presence to the point where they think they're going to die. Salvation to mankind is imperative. Psalm 138.2 says, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. The entire basis for this earth-shadowing phenomena, all the fear and the trembling, all the cacophony of calamity is for this singular special purpose and it's for the demonstration of the authenticity of the presence of God in the messenger of God so that the people would believe Moses and what he says comes from God. In other words, God wanted everyone to know that Moses is the mediator between me and you. Not the word of Moses. This is not the word of Moses. So he delivers a sermon that they will never forget. He takes them into a setting that they can never forget. He says, this is my word mediated through my servant. I just think the uniqueness of that, the wonders that God manifested was to center the reverence and the attention of the people on the God who gives law to man. And though God cannot obviously be literally seen or they would die. He could be known and he could be known through his word and his word was made known through Moses. This is the only, by the way, instance in the Old Testament where the gathered community is confronted with such a direct experience of God that doesn't happen again in this way. Hearing God speak without a mediator. It's a unique divine appearance is very, very important. So, what do the people do? What would you do? What do the people do? They cry for a mediator. Give us a mediator. We've heard you. We can't take of you, oh God. Speak to him. We'll listen to him. You see, when we enter into the presence of God, we must see him as holy. We must sense our sinfulness 
and the fear must be proportional. It is a fear that grows out of an overwhelming sense of the unworthiness that we have in his presence. Look what Moses says in verse 20 of chapter 20. Do not be afraid. For God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may be with you so that you may not sin. Which brings us back to the beginning of where we started this entire teaching today. He gives them indirectly the second point, the second way to make sure that they learn to fear God. You learn to tremble at God's word. But they needed to know why they should tremble. Let me give you some distinctives here. First, When he says that you're afraid of God, the people did hear and see all that they had seen and they were scared, but they had been given the experience as a gift. The the gift was a deliberate gift, not that they might be afraid of God, but that they might have reverence for God. And so take seriously his way of living in relationship. What's this test that he keeps referring to? What's this test? The term test, nashah, Generally translated test or prove with different implications, a test of faith, a test of obedience, a test of proper respect. It could even refer to a test of whether they would cross the boundaries that God had set for them in Sinai. Earlier in the narrative, if you go back to review this later, Exodus 15, 25, the term is used exactly the same way. In the first two instances, the reference to God putting the people to a test of trust, the people putting God to a test of patience with their complaints against Moses and provision of water. As commentator Greenberg has shown, nasha also means test prove in the sense of trying something on. First uh, Samuel 17, of getting used to something, Deuteronomy 28, 56, of experiencing something or someone in depth firsthand, 2 Chronicles 32:31. So it seems as if the idea combining all of these ideas together is God wants to see if we will be loyal to him. Isn't it true that the initial stages of any relationship is a time of testing, right? There's always a time when those in relationships find themselves having to test the loyalty of the other one that they are in a relationship with, the nature of the relationship and the mutual expectations the partners have. You know, I just came back a couple of weeks ago from teaching singles about how to initiate and respond. And, and there's a lot of testing going on that weekend, a lot of testing of intentions. What's your intention with me? In marriage, you have components different from the testing in a business partnership, right? Because it's a different relationship, but you're still testing the boundaries. As the relationship matures and trust levels are built up, faithful responses to the testing of the relational bond will tend to become second nature, less of a test, more automatic, but in the beginning, it's a test. That's what we see with Abraham in Genesis 22.1. The test is for us, not God. The test is for us. Will you be loyal? The Lord comes to Israel of his principles for life in relationship with him, his law, and one that they will never forget but will follow 
his ways as a first priority of life. If you just go ahead, just for reference to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Again, sometimes this is not, I don't want, sometimes you park the car here, but just so you can see it with your own eyes, you can go back and read the context later. But Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 28, Moses records this for us as well. He says, And Yahweh heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And Yahweh said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all they have spoken. So the Lord is testing. He is testing. He is pleased with his people that they begged for Moses to speak to them, begged the Lord from a sense of their own unworthiness. Look now at verse 29. And the Lord, back in again, um, verse 29. Oh, that they had, Deuteronomy 5. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. What an expression from the heart of God. Oh, that they would have such a heart in them that they would always be this way. Oh, that they would always fear me. The key is to tremble at his word. John Bunyan says, The fear of God flows from a sound impression that the word of God makes on our souls. For without an impress of the word, there is no fear of God. Hence it is said that God gave to Israel good laws to fear the Lord their God. For as to the extent a man drinks good doctrine into his soul... So to that extent, he fears God. If he drinks in much, he fears him greatly. If he drinks in but little, he fears him but little. If he drinks it not at all, he fears him not at all. So the manifestation of God at Sinai was to produce in Israel fear. In his presence, fear and trembling in their hearts over the miraculous demonstration of his glory so that they would recognize that indeed it was God who's speaking to Moses so that they would tremble in his word, that they would fear God, that they would recognize what matters to him should matter to them. Remember in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through 19, you don't have to turn there, but Peter says that I had this personal experience, manifested himself in such an incredible way, speaking of the transformation But here in verse 19, he says in the same essential message of Exodus 20.20, he says there is something that we have that's even more sure. More sure than a personal manifestation of God. More sure than a transformation on the mountain. More sure than thunder and lightning of thousands. Is the word of God. The word of God itself is more sure than any experience that you could have. Why? Because you can't always believe your senses. You can't always believe your experiences. Your experiences have to be qualified by biblical truth. I think I spoke to this the other day. I have a man in my discipleship group at the seminary who's counseling a woman who is wanting to marry a man who is 10 years um, younger than her. And his concern at first with me was, uh, Tom, you know, it shouldn't work out. It's just not wise. And I said, is he a believer? You can't believe your senses. You can't believe what you think you hear or the tickle down your spine. You believe the word of God. You believe the truth. 
And if you want to know if there's a second coming, just so you know, going back to Peter, <coughs> fine. If you've had an experience of God and a revelation of God and you saw the transfiguration, that's fine. But the Bible says a better proof of the second coming of Christ is the Bible. More than even what you feel, more than even what you think, more than even what you've seen. So we have a more sure word of prophecy. So you, you, do you want to allow the wonder of God to so amaze you and inspire you and terrorize you because of his greatness and your sinfulness that you might stop sinning against him? Then you have to learn to tremble at his word. And what is that going to take? Just a few suggestions. Be prepared to, in your heart, you have to be meet regularly with God and you need to be prepared in your heart to meet God in the Bible. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs says this again in Gospel Fear. He says, fear fastens the eye. When one has a fearful apprehension of a thing, it causes the eye to be fastened upon the thing. So when a congregation comes to have many among it who tremble at God's word, it fastens the attention and their thoughts are bent onto a more solemn way. They dare not give liberty to themselves. No, not to the wondering of their thoughts, much less of their eyes up and down, but they're watching to hear what God has to say to them. End quote. Our time is fleeing, but we have one more point, one more point that I want to give you. If you want to understand how all this kind of translates into action, if you want to know why the wonders of God and the word of God are so important, the test of fearing God by learning also to tremble in the worship of God. So not only to tremble in the wonders of God and to tremble at the word of God, but to tremble in the worship of God. And this is the third way that he gives us the test in Exodus chapter 20. Look at verses 22 through 26. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. You shall make an altar of earth for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your birth offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And if you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones, for if you wield your tool on it... You now, I know that's kind of out of nowhere in a sense, but look, look at the context here. Look at the context. The law has been given. The Lord has manifested this awesome presence before the people of Israel. His word has been signified. His messenger has been signified. All of this has been authenticated. So what's the first thing he does after he does that? What's the first thing he reinforces? He is God, and then he tells them how to worship. He tells them, I am God, and tells them how to worship. The fear of God finds its culmination in the worship of God. Worship is simply praising God. It can take a lot of different forms in the way you praise God, worship Him. I really feel the two key things in worshiping God is to exalt His character and to speak of His character, to exalt His character and to remind us of His character. Another aspect of worship is not just reciting the character of God, but thinking on the... It's when we say, God, you are the God who created the world. You're the God who made man. You're the God who parted the Red Sea. You're the God who led Israel out of Egypt. You're the God who restored Israel from Babylon. You're the God who restored and gave us 
uh, the true life in Jesus Christ. You're the God who raised him from the dead. You're the God who gave the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. You're the God who's done this in my life. You are the God who has built your church here. In other words, what I'm trying to manifest for you is not only you exalt his character and his works, you're in a true sense worshiping God when you're affirming those things. Because worship then becomes a very simple thing. It's, it's worshiping by concentrating upon the character and the works of God. And of course, the heart from which worship comes must be a pure heart. You can't say, and this is really important, well, God, I want to tell you, that's mocking God. So worship must come from a pure heart. Worship in Scripture that can include many things, reading Scripture, singing, illustrations of praying, all kinds of different forms of worship. But it must be focused on the character and the person of God. So you want to learn how to worship? Let me give you some hints from the text and then we'll, we'll end our time. First, it's imperative to find your source of worship in Scripture, Okay. Find your source of worship in Scripture. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, you yourselves, I have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. The Word of God, the only true source of truth, must be supernatural revelation that God has spoken and no other. I spoke of it this morning, even reading in the Psalm, Psalm 19, just remembering that not only has He manifested Himself in general revelation, but specifically in special revelation. Second, make sure you worship other gods beside me, the gods of silver, the gods of gold. You shall not make them for yourself. Israel was very idolatrous. They would, wanting to have a, a God so bad that as soon as they part the, God parts the Red Sea, you know, he comes down from the mountain. They create for them a golden calf as if that's the God that led them out. A.W. Tozer says, Among the sins to which the human heart is prone, hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry. Third, worship God exactly as he demands. He says, You shall make an altar of earth for me. You shall sacrifice on your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. You see, once the tabernacle was constructed, God would allow artists to create altars of gold and, and precious metals. But the point God wants his altars at this point to be of earth. They need to learn to worship him exactly as he deems fit in the way time. He says, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. It was always the right place, always the right place to worship God, not just here on the campus of Grace Community Church. Wherever you worship God, you worship him alone, you worship him corporately, you worship him at all times. Fifth, you worship God without contamination of human effort. You might have wondered what it was that he said, if you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build of cut stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. The use of human hands was thought at that time to somehow add to God. And he did not desire his children to add anything. It was enough for these idol-loving sojourners to do nothing that could begin the cycle of idolatry, claiming that, oh, I am the one that cut the stone. And six, worship with God in regard to all times and your humanness and his holiness. He says, and you shall go up by steps to my, not go up by steps to my altar so that your nakedness will not be exposed. Cover their nakedness, which was a sign of uncleanliness to God. And God was not condemning their humanness, but rather just the point. Be careful in the way you guard yourself from mindlessness when you worship. Did you pass the test? Did you pass the test? Learning to fear God, the fear that comes to you 
because you're forgiven, the forgiveness that makes fear, the fear that is a test. How do you know the fear of God remains in you? Well, you learn to tremble at his wonders, you learn to tremble at his word, and you learn to tremble in his worship. And all of these ways know the fear of God. Just in conclusion, it was 1945. My father was en route on a naval battleship to participate in what has yet been called from that time the invasion of Japan. After years of vicious fighting, it was a terrific version of D-Day to recur no, regardless of the cost. And my father had been in Saipan, he had been in Okinawa, and now he was going to go to the invasion of Japan. It was a suicide mission for sure. And as they drew closer and closer to the Japanese islands, they were preparing their hearts and their minds. And without any advance notice, in the horizon appeared a giant cloud. It was nothing like any of them had ever seen before. Hiroshima had just received the first atomic bomb. And amid, amidst all the fury and the fear of the men chattering about what they had just seen from afar, there was an announcement made by the commander to the crew, the mission is canceled. Something greater has happened. The station of the explosion quieted the troops. Something beyond their incomprehension had taken place. And now the fear of death was replaced by the fear of wonder. Their whole world was changed forever. Oh, that we would tremble at the feet of the one who made the atom with a heart of fear like that. Father, we come to you and thank you for this message, all the messages that we have heard today. We just ask you, Lord, that these things would be true of us, that we would pass the test, that in the midst of our secularism, in the midst of our fears of politics, in the midst of the fear of one-upping each other, whether it be because of sense of our own sinful desire for lust in all things, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, that you would remind us in a very profound way that we are to fear you, to know you, to wonder at you, to have your word deep inside of us so that we might gaze at you and revere you. And may that help us all to pass that test. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.